Part 1 of An Episode of Fiddletown in Selected Stories by Bret Hart. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Jeff Cowgill. Selected Stories by Bret Hart. An Episode of Fiddletown. Part 1. In 1858, Fiddletown considered her a very pretty woman. She had a quantity of light chestnut hair, a good figure, a dazzling complexion, and a certain languid grace which passed easily for gentle womanliness. She always dressed becomingly, and in what Fiddletown accepted as the latest fashion. She had only two blemishes. One of her velvety eyes, when examined closely, had a slight cast, and her left cheek bore a small scar left by a single drop of vitriol, happily the only drop of an entire file, thrown upon her by one of her own jealous sex that reached that pretty face it was intended to mar. But when the observer had studied the eyes sufficiently to notice this defect, he was generally incapacitated for criticism, and even the scar on her cheek was thought by some to add piquancy to her smile. The youthful editor of the Fiddletown Avalanche had said privately that it was an exaggerated dimple. Colonel Starbottle was instantly reminded of the beautifying patches of the days of Queen Anne, but more particularly, sir, of the blankest beautiful women that blank you, you ever laid your two blank eyes upon. A Creole woman, sir, in New Orleans, and this woman had a scar, a line extending blank me from her eye to her blank chin. And this woman, sir, thrilled you, sir, maddened you, sir, absolutely sent your blank soul to perdition with her blank fascination. And one day I said to her, Celeste, how in blank did you come by that beautiful scar, blank you? And she said to me, Star, there isn't another white man that I'd confide in but you, but I made that scar myself, purposely I did, blank me. These were her very words, sir, and perhaps you think it a blank lie, sir, but I'll put up any blank sum you can name and prove it, blank me. Indeed, most of the male population of Fiddletown were, or had been, in love with her. Of this number, about one-half believed that their love was returned, with the exception, possibly, of her own husband. He alone had been known to express skepticism. The name of the gentleman who enjoyed this infelicitous distinction was Tretherick. He had been divorced from an excellent wife to marry this Fiddletown enchantress. She also had been divorced, but it was hinted that some previous experiences of hers in that legal formality had made it perhaps less novel, and probably less sacrificial. I would not have it inferred from this that she was deficient in sentiment, or devoid of its highest moral expression. Her intimate friend had written, on the occasion of her second divorce, The cold world does not understand Clara yet. And Colonel Starbottle had remarked blankly that, with the exception of a single woman in Opelousas Parish, Louisiana, she had more soul than the whole caboodle of them put together. Few indeed could read those lines entitled Infelicimus, commencing, Why waves no cypress o'er this brow? originally published in the Avalanche, over the signature of the Lady Clare, without feeling the tear of sensibility tremble on his eyelids, 
or the glow of virtuous indignation mantle his cheek at the low brutality and pitiable jocularity of the Dutch flat intelligencer, which the next week had suggested the exotic character of the Cyprus and its entire absence from Fiddletown as a reasonable answer to the query. Indeed, it was this tendency to elaborate her feelings in a metrical manner, and deliver them to the cold world through the medium of the newspapers, that first attracted the attention of Tretherick. Several poems descriptive of the effects of California scenery upon a too sensitive soul, and of the vague yearnings for the infinite which an enforced study of the heartlessness of California society produced in the poetic breast, impressed Mr. Tretherick, who was then driving a six-mule freight-wagon between Knight's Ferry and Stockton, to seek out the unknown poetess. Mr. Tretherick was himself dimly conscious of a certain hidden sentiment in his own nature, and it is possible that some reflections on the vanity of his pursuit—he supplied several mining camps with whiskey and tobacco—in conjunction with the dreariness of the dusty plain on which he habitually drove, may have touched some chord and sympathy with this sensitive woman. Howbeit, after a brief courtship, as brief as was consistent with some previous legal formalities, they were married, and Mr. Tretherick brought his blushing bride to Fiddletown or Fidelitown, as Mrs. Tretherick preferred to call it in her poems. The union was not a felicitous one. It was not long before Mr. Tretherick discovered that the sentiment he had fostered while freighting between Stockton and Knight's Ferry was different from that which his wife had evolved from the contemplation of California scenery and her own soul. Being a man of imperfect logic, this caused him to beat her, and she, being equally faulty in deduction, was impelled to a certain degree of unfaithfulness on the same premise. Then Mr. Tretherick began to drink, and Mrs. Tretherick to contribute regularly to the columns of the avalanche. It was at this time that Colonel Starbottle discovered a similarity in Mrs. Tretherick's verse to the genius of Sappho, and pointed it out to the citizens of Fiddletown in a two-columned criticism signed A.S., also published in the avalanche, and supported by extensive quotation. As the avalanche did not possess a font of Greek type, the editor was obliged to reproduce the Lucadian numbers in the ordinary Roman letter, to the intense disgust of Colonel Starbottle, and the vast delight of Fiddletown, who saw fit to accept the text as an excellent imitation of Choctaw, a language with which the Colonel, as a Willome resident of the Indian territories, was supposed to be familiar. Indeed, the next week's intelligencer, contained some vile doggerel supposed to be an answer to Mrs. Tretherick's poem, ostensibly written by the wife of a digger Indian chief, accompanied by a glowing eulogium signed A.S.S. The result of this jocularity was briefly given in a later copy of the avalanche. An unfortunate encounter took place on Monday last between the Honorable Jackson Flash of the Dutch Flash Intelligencer and the well-known Colonel Starbottle of this place in front of the Eureka Saloon. Two shots were fired by the parties without injury to either, although it is said that a passing Chinaman received fifteen buckshot in the calves of his legs from the colonel's double-barreled shotgun, which were not intended for him. John will learn to keep out of the way of Malican man's firearms hereafter. The cause of the affray is not known, although it is hinted that there is a lady in the case. The rumor that points to a well-known and beautiful poetess, whose lucubrations have often graced our columns, seems to gain credence from those that are posted. 
Meanwhile, the passiveness displayed by Tretherick under these trying circumstances was fully appreciated in the gulches. "'The old man's head is level,' said one long-booted philosopher. "'If the colonel kills Flash, Mrs. Tretherick is avenged. If Flash drops the colonel, Tretherick is all right. Either way, he's got a sure thing.' During this delicate condition of affairs, Mrs. Tretherick one day left her husband's home and took refuge at the Fiddletown Hotel, with only the clothes she had on her back. Here she stayed for several weeks, during which period it is only justice to say that she bore herself with the strictest propriety. It was a clear morning in early spring that Mrs. Tretherick, unattended, left the hotel and walked down the narrow street toward the fringe of dark pines which indicated the extreme limits of Fiddletown. The few loungers at that early hour were preoccupied with the departure of the wing-down coach at the other extremity of the street, and Mrs. Tretherick reached the suburbs of the settlement without discomposing observation. Here she took a cross street or road, running at right angles with the main thoroughfare of Fiddletown and passing through a belt of woodland. It was evidently the exclusive and aristocratic avenue of the town. The dwellings were few, ambitious, and uninterrupted by shops and here she was joined by Colonel Starbottle. The gallant Colonel, notwithstanding that he bore the swelling port which usually distinguished him, that his coat was tightly buttoned and his boots tightly fitting, and that his cane, hooked over his arm, swung jauntily, was not entirely at his ease. Mrs. Tretherick, however, vouchsafed him a gracious smile and a glance of her dangerous eyes, and the Colonel, with an embarrassed cough and a slight strut, took his place at her side. "'The coast is clear,' said the colonel, "'and Tretherick is over at Dutch Flat on a spree. "'There's no one in the house but a Chinaman, "'and you need fear no trouble from him.' "'I,' he continued with a slight inflation of the chest "'that imperiled the security of his button, "'I will see that you are protected in the removal of your property.' "'Well, I'm sure it's very kind of you, and so—' disinterested, simpered the lady as they walked along. It's so pleasant to meet someone who has soul, someone to sympathize with in a community so hardened and heartless as this. And Mrs. Tretherick cast down her eyes, but not until they wrought their perfect and accepted work upon her companion. Oh, yes, certainly, of course, said the colonel, glancing nervously up and down the street. Yes, certainly. Perceiving, however, that there was no one in sight or hearing, he proceeded at once to inform Mrs. Tretherick that the great trouble of his life, in fact, had been the possession of too much soul. That many women, as a gentleman, she would excuse him, of course, for mentioning names, but many beautiful women had often sought his society. But being deficient, madam, absolutely deficient in this quality, he could not reciprocate. But when two natures, thoroughly in sympathy, despising alike the sordid trammels of a low and vulgar community and the conventional restraints of a hypocritical society, when two souls, in perfect accord, met and mingled in poetical union, then— but here the colonel's speech, which had been remarkable for a certain whiskey and watery fluency, grew husky, almost inaudible, and decidedly incoherent. Possibly Mrs. Tretherick may have heard something like it before and was enabled to fill the hiatus— Nevertheless, the cheek that was on the side of the colonel was quite virginal and bashfully conscious until they reached their destination. 
It was a pretty little cottage, quite fresh and warm with paint, very pleasantly relieved against a platoon of pines, some of whose foremost files had been displaced to give freedom to the fenced enclosure in which it sat. In the vivid sunlight and perfect silence it had a new, uninhabited look, as if the carpenters and painters had just left it. At the farther end of the lot a Chinaman was stolidly digging, but there was no other sign of occupancy. The coast, as the colonel had said, was indeed clear. Mrs. Tretherick paused at the gate. The colonel would have entered with her, but was stopped by a gesture. "'Come for me in a couple of hours, and I shall have everything packed,' she said, as she smiled and extended her hand. The colonel seized and pressed it with great fervor. Perhaps the pressure was slightly returned, for the gallant colonel was impelled to inflate his chest and trip away as smartly as his stubby-toed, high-heeled boots would permit. When he had gone, Mrs. Tretherick opened the door, listened a moment in the deserted hall, and then ran quickly upstairs to what had been her bedroom. Everything there was unchanged as on the night she left it. On the dressing-table stood her bandbox, as she remembered to have left it when she took off her bonnet. On the mantel lay the other glove she had forgotten in her flight. The two lower drawers of the bureau were half open, she had forgotten to shut them, and on its marble top lay her shawl-pin and a soiled cuff. What other recollections came upon her I know not, but she suddenly grew quite white, shivered, and listened with a beating heart and her hand upon the door. Then she stepped to the mirror, and half fearfully, half curiously, parted with her fingers the braids of her blonde hair above her little pink ear, until she came upon an ugly, half-heeled scar. She gazed at this, moving her pretty head up and down to get a better light upon it, until the slight cast in her velvety eyes became very strongly marked indeed. Then she turned away with a light, reckless, foolish laugh, and ran to the closet where hung her precious dresses. These she inspected nervously, and missing suddenly a favorite black silk from its accustomed peg, for a moment thought she should have fainted, but discovering it the next instant lying upon a trunk where she had thrown it, a feeling of thankfulness to a superior being who protects the friendless, for the first time sincerely thrilled her. Then, albeit she was hurried for time, she could not resist trying the effect of a certain lavender neck-ribbon upon the dress she was then wearing before the mirror. And then suddenly she became aware of a child's voice close beside her, and she stopped. And then the child's voice repeated, "'Is it Mama?' Mrs. Tretherick faced quickly about. Standing in the doorway was a little girl of six or seven. Her dress had been originally fine, but was torn and dirty, and her hair, which was a very violent red, was tumbled serio-comically about her forehead. For all this she was a picturesque little thing, even through whose childish timidity there was a certain self-sustained air which is apt to come upon children who are left much to themselves. She was holding under her arm a rag-doll, apparently of her own workmanship, and nearly as large as herself, a doll with a cylindrical head and features roughly indicated with charcoal. A long shawl, evidently belonging to a grown person, dropped from her shoulders and swept the floor. The spectacle did not excite Mrs. Tretherick's delight. Perhaps she had but a small sense of humor. Certainly when the child, still standing in the doorway, again asked, "'Is it Mama?' she answered sharply, "'No, it isn't,' and turned a severe look upon the intruder. The child retreated a step, 
and then, gaining courage with the distance, said in deliciously imperfect speech, "'Do away, then. Why don't you do away?' But Mrs. Tretherick was eyeing the shawl. Suddenly she whipped it off the child's shoulders and said angrily, "'How dared you take my things, you bad child?' "'Is it yours? Then you are my mamma, ain't you?' "'You are mamma.' she continued gleefully, and before Mrs. Tretherick could avoid her, she had dropped her doll, and catching the woman's skirts with both hands, was dancing up and down before her. "'What's your name, child?' said Mrs. Tretherick coldly, removing the small and not very white hands from her garments. "'Terry.' "'Terry?' "'Yes, Terry, Terryline.' "'Caroline?' "'Yes, Terryline Tretherick.' "'Whose child are you?' demanded Mrs. Tretherick, still more coldly, to keep down a rising fear. "'Why, yours,' said the little creature with a laugh. "'I'm your little girl. You're my mamma, my new mamma. Don't you know my old mamma's going away, never to turn back any more? I don't live with my old mamma now. I live with you and papa.' "'How long have you been here?' asked Mrs. Tretherick snappishly. "'I think it's three days,' said Carrie reflectively. "'You think?' "'Don't you know?' sneered Mrs. Tretherick. "'Then where did you come from?' Carrie's lip began to work under this sharp cross-examination. With a great effort and a small gulp, she got the better of it, and answered, "'Papa. Papa fetched me. From Miss Simmons. From Sacramento last week.' "'Last week? You said three days just now,' returned Mrs. Tretherick with severe deliberation. "'I'm in a month,' said Carrie now utterly adrift in sheer helplessness and confusion. "'Do you know what you are talking about?' demanded Mrs. Tretherick shrilly, restraining an impulse to shake the little figure before her and precipitate the truth by specific gravity. But the flaming red head here suddenly disappeared in the folds of Mrs. Tretherick's dress, as if it were trying to extinguish itself forever. "'Well, then, how? Stop that sniffling!' said Mrs. Tretherick, extricating her dress from the moist embraces of the child, and feeling exceedingly uncomfortable. "'Wipe your face now, and, and run away, and don't bother!' "'Stop!' she continued, as Carrie moved away. "'Where's your papa?' "'He's done away, too. He's sick. He's been done,' she hesitated. Two free days.' "'Who takes care of you, child?' said Mrs. Tretherick, eyeing her curiously. John the Chinaman. I tresses myself. John Tooks and makes the beds. Well, now, run away and behave yourself, and don't bother me any more, said Mrs. Tretherick, remembering the object of her visit. Stop! Where are you going? She added as the child began to descend the stairs, dragging the long doll after her by one helpless leg. Going upstairs to play and be dood, and no bother mamma. I ain't your mamma, shouted Mrs. Tretherick. And then she swiftly re-entered her bedroom and slammed the door. Once inside, she drew forth a large trunk from the closet and set to work with querulous and fretful haste to pack her wardrobe. She tore her best dress in taking it from the hook on which it hung. She scratched her soft hands twice with an ambushed pin. All the while, she kept up an indignant commentary on the events of the past few moments. She said to herself she saw it all. Tretherick had sent for this child of his first wife, this child of whose existence he had never seemed to care, just to insult her, to fill her place. 
Doubtless the first wife herself would follow soon, or perhaps there would be a third. Red hair. Not auburn, but red. Of course the child, this Caroline, looked like its mother, and if so, she was anything but pretty. Or the whole thing had been prepared. This red-haired child, the image of its mother, had been kept at a convenient distance at Sacramento, ready to be sent for when needed. She remembered his occasional visits there, on business, as he said. Perhaps the mother already was there. But no, she had gone east. Nevertheless, Mrs. Tretherick, in her then state of mind, preferred to dwell upon the fact that she might be there. She was dimly conscious also of a certain satisfaction in exaggerating her feelings. Surely no woman had ever been so shamefully abused. In fancy she sketched a picture of herself sitting alone and deserted at sunset among the fallen columns of a ruined temple in a melancholy yet graceful attitude while her husband drove rapidly away in a luxurious coach and four with a red-haired woman at his side. Sitting upon the trunk she had just packed, she partly composed a lugubrious poem describing her sufferings as, wandering alone and poorly clad, she came upon her husband and another, flaunting in silks and diamonds. She pictured herself dying of consumption brought on by sorrow. A beautiful wreck, yet still fascinating, gazed upon adoringly by the editor of the Avalanche and Colonel Starbottle, and where was Colonel Starbottle all this while? Why didn't he come? He, at least, understood her. He... <laughs> she laughed the reckless, light laugh of a few moments before. And then her face suddenly grew grave, as it had not a few moments before. What was that little red-haired imp doing all this time? Why was she so quiet? She opened the door noiselessly and listened. She fancied that she heard, above the multitudinous small noises and creakings and warpings of the vacant house, a smaller voice singing on the floor above. This, as she remembered, was only an open attic that had been used as a storeroom. With a half-guilty consciousness she crept softly upstairs and, pushing the door partly open, looked within. End of Part 1 of an episode of Fiddletown.